welcome to another episode of Visitings, where we talk to artists who are engaged with the public outside the traditional exhibition space. Why are they drawn to these communities, and what's the stuff that inspires them? My name is Alan Nakagawa, and I'll be your host. Melly Troches is a painter and muralist. Her work has been exhibited internationally. Her work can be viewed at mellytroches.com. That's M-E-L-L-Y-T-R-O-C-H-E-Z dot com. Melly is based in Los Angeles. Her work is often filled with great color and figures, either representing her and her alter egos or circle of friends and heroic situations. It wasn't until recently that I learned that she was a practicing art therapist. I asked her to explain what art therapy was and how she gravitated toward it as a, a profession. So you were talking about this um, uh, panel you were on, where you met Grace and... Yeah, Loyola Marymount. So they have a strong art therapy program. I don't know anything about art therapy. Can you kind of talk about that? Sure. It's been around... uh, It's fairly new, I would say. I mean, it's been around um, for less than 100 years. We had... um, It started in, in... like psychi- psychiatric units. There was an, a nursing program in New York, I believe. And, um, you know, there was some doctors and nurses that got together and really wanted to help um, severely mentally ill clients um, just kind of deal with a lot of, like, the, the pain they were going through. So it stemmed from that, from, like, nurses really trying to find ways to communicate with clients that weren't able to verbalize um, what was going on. And then from that, it just kind of, um, you know, became very popular and then finally got accepted into, you know, like mainstream um, mental health. And Loyola was the first school that opened in Southern California. And it, the founder was, you know, and also someone who was connected with that whole movement in New York. Um, and um, largely, largely a Jewish population that, you know, that founded it and and continues to be um, some of the the most important figures in um, the structure of it, you know, because there's like a whole association and um, like, uh, what do you call it? Like a, there's um, like a, there's an association that you have to join once you become an art therapist. You don't have to, but it, it's kind of like an accreditation program. This, it sounds like it's a kind of unlocking process. Yes for a kind of communication that isn't verbal. And is this, I can think of so many other things that are related to that. I'm a complete novice to all of that, Mm -hmm. but I'm thinking like, uh, you know, primal therapy and pre and prenatal psychology Mm -hmm. and all all of that. And then certainly like, you know, Carl Jung's uh, collective unconscious and right. all of the methodologies that he had created. Right. So um, art therapy is a modality that you would use in therapy in your, you know, traditional psychotherapy is talking. So you go see a therapist to to talk about, you know, whatever it is that you're going through, problems, um, you know, stressors, if you're having any kind of, you know, life um 
issue that you need to kind of talk through, you would go see a psychotherapist. So an art therapist is someone that you come in and see. And instead of having to talk the entire time, you would be prompted to do different types of art directives. So depending on what you're coming in with, like what issue, um, we would, you know, kind of direct the art intervention to go with whatever kind of intervention we would do um, to help you kind of access whatever it is that you're you know, either repressing or you have like in your con in your subconscious or um, just, you know, just a need to express yourself in a different way that may not feel um, as intimidating or um, intrusive because sometimes people don't really want to necessarily talk about their problems. So it's easier to, you know, to create an image and then you together kind of make sense of what the image is. And then over time, you would have like a body of work that you're, you know, a client coming into therapy would create. And then you can look at it and then you would see the trends of what happened in the beginning, middle and end, you know. So you can kind of point out like different um, hidden messages or different um, progress or, um, you know, it just helps you have like a visual indicator of like what you've done in therapy. And it also helps helps you see things that might necessarily come out like you know in your immediate like consciousness like you might not know like what it is that's blocking you but once you start creating imagery it kind of naturally releases itself without you even being conscious of it let's god there's so many questions i have i don't know where to start so i, I guess we'll start with you pre-lmu how did you get into that field and like, what drove you to dedicate, you know, your life to that? Okay. Um, I think, naturally, I have always been very um, curious and had an investigative type of personality. You know, I was very introverted growing up, like, extremely introverted, where I had a hard time even expressing my needs. So um, as I got older and I, you know, became more um, expressive through my art, my paintings, um, my late teens, I started painting. And then um, throughout my 20s, when I was, um, you know, really deep in trying to express myself internally, I mean, my internal self in through my art, um, I just kept finding this need to, like, continue self-exploration and trying to I wanted answers to a lot of things, you know, uh, answers to the people around me, about the people around me, like why they did certain things or why certain um, events took place in my childhood. Um, you know, I, I always came from, from more of like a curious place instead of like a, you know, um, blaming place. Like I didn't like to be too critical of people, but try to understand like why, what was the motive behind their behaviors. So that was something that stayed with me throughout, you know, my early process in, in the arts. And then as I got older, you know, that passion just kept growing and growing. And I just started reading more. And I, I came across, you know, Jung and, and um, you know, Freud. And there was always, like, this psychological interest of just people behind my process. And, um, you know, and that's something that, like, I, I always wanted to understand, like, where is that coming from and why do I have it? But there's also this other side of me that had this need to help people. Um, and so uh, through my 20s when I was, you know, painting and pretty much doing that full time and got my bachelor's in fine arts and um, 
I found myself finding like part-time work always in some type of role of helper you know as if it were if it weren't in the school I was doing things in the community or volunteering my time and it was always like helping people who were um, less advantaged or or um, people who were in positions that you know just needed a lot of compassion and patience um, I had a few years where I worked with severe autistic children and I did camps for kids that weren't accepted by any other camps so it was it was um, you know a pretty uplifting part of my 20s because it was like not only was I able to have the patience to work with these kids but it was also under I was really trying to understand these this population you know the autistic population they're so interesting and and they're very very creative and there was something about you know there's particular kids that I worked with that just really just really intrigued me to a level where I knew I had to do more with this you know I knew I couldn't just let this go because it was something that was really innate but also it was very inspiring in my work I started painting you know certain kids that I worked with and I mean not realistic representations of them but just like um, inspirations that I would get from working with them Um, I have a whole series of work with the Magenta Moon character, this child I created that um, that she has autism. I mean, in the paintings, you wouldn't be able to read that, but um, when I had my first solo show at uh, Bergamont Station a few years back, I, I did a few paintings of her, and they sold, you know, and, and it was really interesting to me because never once did anyone ask, you know, like, what is this child representing, or what? It, why? Wh who is the child? What is she doing? And um, the first painting that I did that was really personal to me, and um, kind of like launched a series of her was the "I'd Rather Play with Ladybugs" painting, and it's about a child who's sitting in the in a field, and um, it's I'm pouring a bucket of ladybugs onto her because when I was working with this child. Um, you know, Magenta Moon is a symbolic representation of this child, but when I was working with this child, uh, I was being informed and directed to stop her from wanting to play with ladybugs, you know, like you want to mainstream her, you want her to be like the other kids and play with the other kids, but there was always this part of me that kind of resisted that and wanted to question, like, why? Why does she have to play with the other kids? You know, if this is something that fulfills her and she's really, you know, passionate about these ladybugs, like, give her more, you know? So that was something that, you know, just really, really... It drove, drove me to want to continue my work with not only with autistic children, but like just all of, you know, the spectrum of mental health, because I always feel like that because of the stigmas, because of society always wanted to create these boxes, a lot of these people would, you know, have such a such a higher possibility of health and and um, and well wellness if like they were given the opportunities that to be accepted or just, um, I guess, seen in a different light, you know? But from that body of work, um, working under the director I was working with at the time, she mentioned to me, you know, you, you really have a special skill and, you know, you're so creative, there's this program that you should look into 
that has um she said music therapy but you know i was thinking well i'm more of an artist so i mean like a visual artist so i was thinking if there was something more like art you know like i would be really interested and from that i i can't remember how it just kind of like appeared to me one day you know i saw something and i looked into it and i came across loyola marymount and i knew i had to apply when i was i was at a point in my life where i think right before i hit 30 that i was like okay, I really want to go back to school, but am I going to go to art school? Am I going to go to um, get my MFA? Or do I want to do like the Loyola Marymount program? And so I applied to both and I got into both. And it was like one of the, probably one of the hardest decisions I had to make at that time um, because, you know, like I wanted to just continue to make art, you know, full time. But I knew that even if I did that, I was still going to have that passion to want to do more in you know, psychological realm. So it just made sense to me at the time um, to take the Loyola um, route. And so that's pretty much how I ended up here. Mm. It's funny because, you you know, you hear and you see different people with different disabilities, you know, every day. But very rarely do we see them at that early stage in, as a group, you know? So it was super, super just, like, you know, heartwarming to be with all these little ones that have, you know, mixed needs. And um, so I really enjoyed working at the preschool because I felt like that's where you can do a lot of the work, you know, it's like self-esteem and just giving them a lot of tools that they'll need. And there was one particular kid that I worked with. Uh, I won't say his name, but um, just... There was something about him that I, I was so intrigued by that I, I studied him. And I, I was actually um, requested to be his shadow at the time because, you know, I he needed a lot of like hands on like hand on hand type of um, like direction and, and a lot of assistance. But I started just really watching his human behaviors and, and noticing that, you know, everything I've learned, everything I was trained to do with these kids back then. Um, like behavioral uh, interventions, you know, I started fine-tuning it to what I felt like um, he really needed, you know, I was trying to really connect, like, on a more of a primal level you were talking about, and seeing, okay, so certain songs bring out this, like, there was a song the teacher would play that had um, this melody to it, and he would just cry, and we couldn't figure out why, what about this melody, because he wasn't very verbal, he would just say, like, you know, like, kind of would communicate more with like his hands and would say certain words but not really communicate what his needs were but it was just a song you know about this duck and every time they would read this book and play the music to it he would start crying and that was so interesting to me because I was trying to connect like something about this melody is like triggering something for him and um so and you know we, we try to work with it and doing different things to help prepare him so my thing was like, okay, so maybe there needs to be some kind of reassurance before the song came on or something, you know? So I was trying to always find ways to, like, make his day less triggered. So I started really following him to the point where he wasn't, he would only drink out of a bottle, you know, that's his thing. I mean, he was four or five, so it wasn't, you know, too, too delayed. But, you know, for preschool, it, it, they, they don't expect you to be drinking out of a bottle. So being able to follow him throughout his day and, and watch him do little things like take his first sip of water out of a fountain because he got to the point where he became 
very connected to me where he would mimic me so i started using that you know in my ah. as, as an advantage you know where if i drank water you know he would copy me or if i played a certain tune like tapping or something he would copy that so it was it was very interesting and um from that you know i, I moved on to a different program with a little bit older kids like i want like eight-year-olds and that's where i met the girl that was like inspired my uh, Magenta Moon character. Um, well, my 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 maternal my paternal grandmother, my dad's mother, is uh, was when she worked. She was a nurse at Hollenbach, um, oh. in yeah, in um, Boyle Heights. So. I mean, she's very, you know, another one who is also very nurturing, very giving, wanting to care and caretaker. Um, so, I mean, there's some connection there. And my dad is also, you know, very loving and, and always trying to do good to others and, you know, can't can't um, harm anything. Um, my mother, she she's also, but she's more just like, very like she's very protective of only her immediate family <laughs> so it's just us like anyone else she doesn't care no she does <laughs> care but she's very she's very like mama bear protective of of her kids like you know some people might think it's a little extreme like she's just she's just very um just uh very nurturing to us so maybe that you know has some connection but i think just growing up in general i i was um I took this role as the secret keeper, you know, in my family. So, um, and I think because I'm the only girl, I'm the only female, my, I have three brothers, um, my mom naturally just kind of confided in me a lot of family secrets that I had to hold. So I was kind of, I don't know if I was burdened. I kind of felt special too because I get to hold these secrets. I mean, it was hard, you know, as a child to feel like, well, this is heavy material. But when I look back, you know, I appreciate that she trusted me or that she was able to have someone to confide in because she was pretty uh, isolated out here from her family because they all um, remained in Honduras or in different parts of the country. The secret keeper. I don't know if I've heard that phrase before. <laughs> and it's kind of what you do in therapy. I mean, you're holding so many people's, you know, very sensitive, you know, material. Like you, you hold it and you, you don't really share it. You, you maintain that confidentiality. So I think you, you, you are primed from very young to kind of hold people's stuff. I think that's kind of where a lot of us come from. If you talk to different therapists, psychologists, um, it's something you'll see a trend in. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then there's your artwork. So we, we should talk a little bit about your artwork. We, we, we've been alluding to it, actually. Mm-hmm. So, I think to some extent, your work um, needs commitment from the viewer. How do you feel about that statement? I think so. I think 
commitment as far as like um, spending time with it or wanting to or hearing the backstory? Like, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, the backstory maybe, but you know, most people like I'm thinking when you go into a gallery or museum, most people just look at our artwork for this. It's not even a minute, right. you know. But so I feel like your work, and you're not the only one. There's lots of artists. Mm -hmm. The work really requires a commitment on the part of the viewer to really mm -hmm. look at what's going on. I think so. Yeah. And I also think it depends on the series because I have different series that are more obvious, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. And Can we pick a piece that will definitely always be on your website that you can kind of talk about? I'm, I'm envisioning somebody listening to this and they being able to go onto your website to look at what we're talking about. Okay. Hmm. Well, the um, I'd rather play with ladybugs that I talked about earlier. That's definitely always going to stay there. It's very special to me. Um, Humble Me is another one. I, I did a lot of um, self-portraits um, work that, you know, just things that I was working out with on my own personal narratives and you know when I was in the process of getting all this experience working with these kids I was also doing a lot of my personal work because I was struggling with a lot of my own mental health issues at the time like my teens and early 20s so a lot of those pieces are very important because they speak on different um, events that were happening in my life that were very challenging so we're looking at uh, humble me which is the two boxers and they're both a portrait of Melly, but which one are you you want are you talking about right now? Well I had to because in my in my twenties, I, I I will go back a lot to my twenties because that was a big turning point. You know, it's a lot of why I had to go into this field because there was so much going on in my personal life and my, you know, career and like things happened really fast when I graduated um, from my bachelor program. You know, I, I start I got picked up you know, pretty quick by some galleries and then like I was having shows like left and right you know it was very very quick movement at that time and I kind of found myself getting very lost in the art world and feeling very um, I guess overwhelmed with some of the personalities and demands and and um, just different things I had to witness that um, I needed to slow down and part of me going to you know, my master's program was part of that. It was kind of like a, for me, it was like a retreat, you know, just taking a break from a lot of it. So um, that painting came at a time that I was really kind of communicating with these two parts of me because, you know, I had, um, I got exposed to a lot because I was very sheltered as a child. So when I entered like in the art world, per se, they, I got exposed to so much more like that I had to quickly become familiar with, like street smarts. I started dealing with artists that had enormous egos. I got, I got um, mixed up with some artists, uh, street artists, and um, started working a lot collaboratively with um, some street artists that, you know, it was hard for me because, you know, as, as much as I respected their work, I had a, I was very conflicted with the personalities, you know, because it wasn't what I was familiar with. It wasn't anything that I knew before. So I felt like I had to put on this other persona to have like this strong, like, you know, because I was so sensitive and vulnerable. 
and then going and make, getting mixed up with you know these big artists that have been on the streets for a very long time and just whole different mindset and upbringing and it was hard it was very very hard for me so i i had my street um alias that i went by aiko <laughs> and so oh, that is that what that is yes oh, so okay. there that painting has it's written on the pant yes the shorts of the painting the has aiko versus you know melly i guess oh i see i see so it's kind of just this inner conflict that i was having just trying to make sense of like okay well this is really fun this is really great this is awesome hanging out you know and being a part of this these artist groups but at the same time i knew that it wasn't who i was you know because i had to see things that i wouldn't feel comfortable with even really talking about sometimes you know but it was it was just it was a very hard time for me and so that painting was kind of like this conflict of like who's gonna win you know In a generalization generalized statement but i would say most if not all artists struggle in some way or another because i think it's just who, you know who we are we're very vulnerable and and our sensibilities just naturally lead to you know being overwhelmed easily or having conflicts that just you know kind kind of consume us so it's very important for me for artists to have access to mental health and and um Eventually, once I'm licensed, like I want to do something that either provides free or low-cost mental health to to artists, the artist community, um, because it's a community that I'm very passionate about and and it's underserved. Um, so that's kind of like where the secret keeping continues. Mm. You know, amazing. That's great. They were discussing vegetarianism, mm -hmm. and this one person said, well, actually, there's a study now that they show that when you pull a plant out, it does actually scream in its own way. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a pain mechanism there. Mm -hmm. Did you hear that? Yes. What? So what is that? They have lacrimal, um, um, what do you call it? They have, they, they, they cry. They have the... Um, is it the doc lacrimal doc like we have oh. tear you know they they do cry um is that it, our tear duct yes there you oh. go it's called lac i thought it was called lacrimal doc i don't know, I, don't know. <laughs> I thought so i don't know that's the um, medical term probably possibly yes they do there's studies that show if you magnify what's happening like they they release like they secrete you know like what appears to be like a tear i know so what i do when i like if i'm gonna do a cutting you know to replant or to because i have herbs as well i will ask permission first and i'll try to like you know do a little bit of like you know calming it before i pull it and then i'll you know kind of bless it like thank you i'm very grateful for like any cuttings i do because i do i do um, believe that they do have an experience, you know, so I, I don't want to um, add to that, like, pain or whatever it is that, you know, they're they're kind of going through at the moment when they're broken or, you know, mm. pulled. It's really sad. It's sad. <laughs> I know, like, I what so the bad. hell can you eat if the plant is also crying? Um, I guess if you create that ritual, then it makes it more cyclical, hopefully. I think so. Yeah. 
just being mindful of it and not abusing, you know, not cutting when you don't need to, things like that. My uh, friend in Japan, his family um, are uh, house painters, and their circle of friends are all craftspeople, you know. Mm-hmm. And this one guy who comes from generations of uh, um, uh, craftsmen who work, mm-hmm. work with wood, especially in houses and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the, the ancient carpenters, they don't do that so much now, I guess. But back in the day, if you had to nail into a piece of wood, you would apologize. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because they so feel that there's a spirit in the wood. Even though it's dead, you know, it's not a tree yeah. anymore and it's in a house, that the yeah. vibration, the spirit is still in there. So you have to kind of apologize every time you... Uh, mm-hmm. Which I suspect is, you know, why they <laughs> mastered all of those, uh, you know, those uh, binding techniques. Mm. and uh, you know, the, there's, Yeah, there's some cultures that um, practice... What is it? Is it um, animus or something? We believe, like, the everything has... A, everything in life has a spirit to oh, it. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I definitely... You know, ascribe to that. I mean, I, I'm not as, as, I guess, committed, but I, I need to work on that where I, I do think things need to be given like that, that moment of like reflection because I think that everything does have some kind of energy, you know, whether it's um, alive, like the way we understand life or just energy in itself. So, yeah, giving it that space of like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm sorry. Thank you. You know, just gratitude and like think about how much more advanced we would be in humanity if like everyone stopped to like really just think about you know the actions they take that concludes another episode of visitings i hope you enjoyed that thanks to meli troches for coming on the show Thank you to Echo Park Film Center for this opportunity and the good folks at Machine Projects and Dub Lab for letting me share this on 99.1 FM. I'm Alan Nakagawa, sitting in my living room in Koreatown, saying thank you for listening to Visitings. Mm-hmm.